0: Good evening. Hey, it's good to see you here tonight, and we're certainly thankful for your presence. Oh, he did leave them. It's like, I think Wes took my sweethearts. <laughs> Let me get those, though. I need them later. We're going to continue our discussion of sanctification. In fact, we're going to be doing that for the next foreseeable several weeks, and we're looking forward to the study. Hope you are as well. Tonight, we want to try to make a distinction between salvation and sanctification. And we talked this morning about God's plan ultimately to bring the Christ, and what that does is lead to salvation. And unfortunately, because these things are misunderstood, I've actually had people say to me, I would become a Christian, but I'm going to mess it up. And since I can't be perfect, then they don't obey the gospel. That's a person I think that misunderstands the difference between salvation and sanctification. And sometimes it's God's own people that struggle with it. God's people sometimes struggle with being perfect. I'm trying to be perfect. I'm trying to do the best I can, but I'm failing very often. And they wonder then, am I saved? Because they're so often in their minds failing at trying to live this perfect life that they have in their minds that they should live. Both of these are a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches and the difference between these two things. Let me say it now. We'll talk about it more in detail. But really, the New Testament, the epistles in particular, are largely written to cover these two areas. They're first written, and they talk a lot about salvation. They talk about the gospel. And so, they talk about how Jesus came and died for the sins of the world. That first thing we talked about, the writers often talk about that as they go through these epistles. The second half of these epistles, and probably the majority of the material, is now that you are a Christian, how do you live your life? And that really is sanctification. And so, these two areas are covered largely in the New Testament, if not entirely. You can see that over and over and over again as you go through the New Testament. The reality is this, salvation leads to sanctification. Really, you can't be sanctified until you're saved. And once you are saved, the expectation is now that you will be sanctified. That's the way biblically it works. And so let's this evening talk a little bit about salvation first and how that leads to sanctification and the the difference between the two. When a person obeys the gospel, that's how we're saved. In fact, you have your Bibles. Look at a passage like 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, where Paul makes it abundantly clear that obeying the gospel is absolutely essential, tantamount to one's eternal destiny. That when Jesus returns, those individuals who did not obey the gospel cannot go to heaven as a result of their sins not having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And Paul says as much here in verse number seven, he says, to give relief to you who are afflicted and unto us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What will happen? Verse number 9 says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power." This is one of the reasons that we so often talk about salvation, the need to be saved. Jesus is coming. You're going to die. Whichever one of those comes first is really irrelevant. The point is, you need to be saved before either of those things occur. You don't want to die, leave this life, go into eternity without being saved. Jesus Christ is the Savior. And if you aren't saved by Him, Well, 2 Thessalonians 1, and it's hardly the only passage, makes it clear you can't go to heaven. That's not because some other human being said it. It's not because some member of the church said it. In fact, truth is, it wouldn't matter if we said it or not. The reality is sin can't get into heaven, and Jesus is the only one who cleanses sin. And the gospel is the means of having that done. Therefore, those who don't obey the gospel— cannot have their sins remitted, and therefore they would enter eternity with sin on their soul, and sin can't go to heaven. Romans 1:16 and 17 tells us that the gospel is God's power to save. For who, Paul says, to everyone. There is no one exempted from obedience to the gospel, that is, of an accountable age with sin in their life. There's no one exempted. Every person must obey the gospel. So when we're talking about salvation, here are some things related to salvation. In salvation, there is a clear line of demarcation. There is a separation between the state of saved and lost. We learn so much from the Old Testament and Old Testament Israel in particular that teaches us things relative to the New Testament church. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 7. In fact, if I'm teaching or preaching, it's probably likely, as we keep going backward, we'll eventually find our way in Genesis, because inevitably, that's where the beginning of all things are, and there's no difference as it relates to salvation. The first time we find the subject of salvation broached on a large scale is Genesis chapter 6. And what we learn in Genesis 6— is going to furnish us and be with us the rest of the Bible consistently. How are men saved? When it comes to salvation, there is a line of demarcation. There are sides drawn. You can identify the state of saved and lost. Genesis 7 and verse 23, the Bible says, "...thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land." from man to animals to creepy things and to the birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were—you'll want to note this—with him in the ark. It is very clear then, as it relates to salvation, there are sides drawn. A person is one place or the other. You were either in the ark or you were outside of the ark. And it's very clear. Nobody has to guess about it. Everybody inside of the ark was saved. Everybody outside of the ark, this verse says, they were blotted out. And the Bible is consistent with that. Jesus was saying in Matthew 24, he took them all away. The floods came, took them all away. There are those in the ark, there are those outside. And that's going to be true consistently. If we talk about Rahab's house in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, 22, and 25, we'll make it again abundantly clear. The saved are in Rahab's house. The city and everybody else are destroyed. The same thing is true of Christ. Salvation is in Christ. Consider Ephesians 2 if you have your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, and notice what the Apostle Paul says beginning in verse number 11 down to verse 13. Paul says with reference to the Gentiles, he says, therefore remember that formerly—now, by the time they're receiving this letter, they're actually saved. And what Paul is asking them to do is, remember when you weren't That at that time, remember that you formerly, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. In that state what did you have the end of verse 12 says having no hope and without God in the world why didn't they have any hope they were apart from Christ Christ is our hope if you're apart from Christ you have no hope that's what the verse says. remember that at that time you were separate from Christ You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God. Person can't have hope without Christ and without God. There is no hope. But notice verse 13, now he says, but now, that's the way you were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace. Who is it that makes peace? It's Jesus. Where is the peace found? In him. Where is salvation found? In him. Where is hope found? In him why talk about salvation all the time because there's a clear line of separation biblically speaking from the ark of Noah to the house of Rahab to the body of Christ a person is in that place or they're not in that place and if one is not in that place it's not possible for anybody here or anybody in the world regardless of how much you love them regardless of how much you care about them regardless of how much you wish it were different you can't make them have the hope that's in christ if they're outside of christ you can't gift them the peace that's in christ if they're outside of Christ, you can't will them the salvation in Christ if they're outside of Christ. What has to happen is they have to obey the gospel and get into Christ. Sometimes Christians get bothered by the emphasis of salvation. Every time we meet, somebody gives an invitation. Every time we meet, the gospel is preached and talked about. And sometimes this becomes a weariness to God's people. Some begin to wonder, why are we always telling the world they're lost? Why don't we just live and let live? Listen, let's say we stop telling them. Let's say we got up and all we did was say, everybody's okay, you're okay. You know what? That wouldn't make it true. It wouldn't change a single thing. What Paul says here in Ephesians 2, 11, and 12 is going to be true until the Lord comes back. Any individual outside of Christ, according to the Bible, has no hope in that state. Does that make them somehow uh, make us better than them? No. Does that make us think we… No. no. It doesn't do anything other than explain the truth of salvation. A person is saved or they're lost. That is the point. And you're in the ark, you're out of the ark. You're in Christ, you're out of Christ. That is the point. In fact, let that be the motivator to move you to obey the gospel, because that's the intent. Moses said to Israel in Exodus 32 and verse 26, and this is, again, the kind of idea behind salvation. He said, who is on the Lord's side? You remember out of the event of the golden calf, And they made the idol, and Moses came down from the mount, and he said those words, "'Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come to me.'" This is the nature of salvation. A line, proverbially or literally, was drawn in the sand, and Moses says, "'Come to me.'" Now, you're either here or you're not. That's the nature of salvation. When we talk about salvation, we learn the way God does that in the Old Testament is so often consistent with the New Testament. This is imperative to understand as it relates to sanctification, though, because as we'll see later, sanctification is not to be confused with salvation. Go back to Exodus chapter 14, if you will, in light of the things we've said so far, and notice verse number 30 and 31. Moses tells the nation of Israel that when they crossed the Red Sea— God is going to save them. Well, you can also appreciate the salvation then involves certain things. You're going to be saved from something. That is typically the way it works in Scripture. The word salvation in Scripture is often simply the word deliverance. It's not always from sin, but it is always from peril or danger or some threat. Here, the threat is not sin for the nation of Israel, it's the Egyptians. And they are pressing down upon them. They're going to come back and attempt to take them back to captivity. Moses says these words in Exodus 14, verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Earlier in this chapter, Moses told them to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And he said, the Lord himself will fight for you. This must be about verse number 14 or 15, if you go back that far. Verse number 13, Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand and by and see the salvation of the Lord, and he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians which you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The end of the chapter, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. Verse 31 says, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That is, again, the nature of salvation. We've talked in the past, and all of these subjects and sermons inevitably find themselves connected in some way. But in talking about salvation, we said a person is saved by grace through faith. That's the nature of salvation. Salvation is not the result of works on humans' part. We don't originate the works. We don't come up with the thing that saves us. If anybody is ever saved, they're saved by God's grace. If God doesn't extend himself first, if God doesn't formalize the plan, reveal the plan, make it known to man, and provide the provisions and means, then we couldn't be saved— it Seems very clear that there's very little Israel was going to be able to do about these Egyptians pressing down on them. The sea is before them, and the Egyptians are pressing hard behind them. There is nothing they can do. They can't part the sea, and they seemingly, they can't fight the Egyptians. And so, what do they do? Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. Well, it won't be by your good works. It'll be by God's grace. It'll be by God's mercy. However, faith is always demanded. In fact, if you were to read chapter 14 closely early in that section where we just were about verse 13, you will hear God say to Moses, raise your staff and tell the people to go forward. The reason that's significant is the sea hasn't parted yet. And that's the nature of faith. Of course, that's another subject full of its own particular studies, but faith is trusting God. How are we going to move forward trusting God? Well, the sea is still there. God says go forward. Believing what? He'll part the sea. I'll take care of that if you trust me. You're always going to find the necessity for man to trust God before God saves man. Man must always demonstrate his trust in God, his reliance on God. When we talk about faith, that's what's being said. And when that's done, God will save. Why is that an important conversation? Again, go over to Titus chapter 3, and as you go toward Titus, stop at Ephesians 2. Here's the reason that's important. It's because when we start talking about sanctification, we're going to talk about Christians and their lives being lived, ultimately to grow in the grace of God. But very often the confusion comes in when Christians start to believe that my good works keeps me saved. That it's what I'm doing that's going to determine, that God is going to save me by my good works. Your good works can't save you. In fact, by the time you start to do the good works, it's because you're already saved. That's the nature of Ephesians 2, where Paul applies all of those things together. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. How are you saved? By grace. Through faith. Always these two things. Can't get around it. Never any exceptions. By grace through faith. But notice what Paul says next. And not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. What we're talking about in is the genesis of salvation. Where does it spring forth from? It comes ek, E-K, out of grace. It doesn't come ek, out of your good works. Doesn't originate there. Now, does that mean it doesn't matter what you do? It does not mean that. It means it comes from God's grace. It doesn't come from your good works. Are there good works to do? Yes. Whose works are they? God's. In fact, that's what he says next. He says in verse number nine, it's not as a result of works so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It really works like that. God saves by grace through faith. Now saved, God tells us the good works to do. We do the good works that God said, believing, trusting him, never imagining that my good works saves me. Never imagining that my good works is what does it. Otherwise, we'd boast. Look how good I am. Look how many Bible studies I had. Look how many times I attended service. Look how many times I—you remember a man talking like this in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, where Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a publican, one a Pharisee. And the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he says that I tithe and I fast and I give all these things. I'm not even like that publican. And Jesus says, and that whole parable is about those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. We do need to do good works. That's part of sanctification. But the good works are going to grow out of the fact that we're already saved, not in order to be saved. Look at it in in the book of Titus. Notice what Titus says in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. People seem to waffle and vacillate between these two extremes, either— It doesn't matter what I do because of God's grace, or I have to make sure I'm perfect because God demands that I do good works. Neither one of those things are correct. In Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, Paul says this, remind them—this would be us, New Testament Christians, as Paul writes to Titus, remind them. Remind them what? You'll notice the two things. First, salvation, Then, good works or sanctification. Paul says, "...remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to every good work, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we were also once foolish ourselves. We were once disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but..." That's the way we were. We were without hope. We were without God. We were without Christ. Paul says we were that way. But, verse number 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured upon us so richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs together according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have been have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds— these things are good and profitable for men. I trust you heard from about verse 5 down to verse number 7 that we were justified by God's mercy. And having been justified, now then we do good works to give him glory. But we don't reverse that. We don't put the good works as the means of the salvation. It's hard for me to know whether or not I'm communicating effectively because, you, well, I don't know. I'm hopeful. How's it going so far in your estimation? (laughs) Old Testament Israel is again an example of this. Go back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, with regards to salvation, it is the result of doing whatever God says. That's where the grace and the faith come in. It's one of the reasons as well as you read through the Bible, people actually do different things to be saved or delivered. Noah is going to build an ark. Rahab is going to get in her house. Israel is going to cross the Red Sea and move forward. And then on this occasion, as God institutes the Passover, notice if you were to read from verse 1 down to verse number 12, he talks about putting the blood out, and being prepared, and getting the leaven out, and having a lamb for one house, and shared if necessary, and he goes through all of these details, and sometimes people misunderstand. They think, well, you people, again, keep trying to emphasize the details. We don't originate the details, and so, yes, we emphasize the details because they're God's details— Noah didn't come up with the wood, and the dimensions, and the length, and the width, and the height. And Noah didn't originate the plans for the ark. God did. And since God originated them, in order to please him, you do what he said. That's the nature of faith. Rahab was told, put the scarlet line out of your window. Now, does she do that or not? We're not so foolish as to believe there's magic in the cord. We're not so foolish as to believe there's magic in the water. The point is not the item in question. The point is who said it and whose works are they? Sure, if we said, you know what? In order to be saved, you need to count X amount of beads. You don't need to do that, because counting X amount of bees is not going to save anybody. If we say, well, in order to be saved, you have to, and you fill in the blank. If we originated, it's one of the reasons when we're trying to communicate the gospel to our friends and our family, we have to be rather exacting about that. We have to help them appreciate what is being taught biblically and what's not. We are not Church of Christer's. We're not. Please don't tell people that. I've been a church of Christ my whole life. If you are saved, you've been a Christian and put a period at the end of that. There's no, nothing else. That's what you've been. We're not asking people when we're teaching them the gospel, leave your religious group and come join ours because it's better. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, biblically speaking, the Lord has one place of salvation. In Noah's day, it was the ark. In Rahab's day, it was the house. And if God has been specific and placed that salvation in Christ, then you need to get there. How do you do that? The church is not the building. The church is the body of Christ. How do you do that? You obey the gospel. And herein lies the problem. The religious world at large, if not entirely, does not teach the gospel saves. It does not. Well, how do you know that, Eric? Well, number one, they will tell you you're saved before you're baptized. That's not the gospel. Romans 6, 3, and 4 won't fit that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4 won't fit that, where the Bible says this is the gospel. And if that's what the gospel is, then you're teaching somebody something else. That won't do it. Are there details? Yes. And if God gives them, well, then we all have to do them. He gives details here. In fact, in verse number 13, verse 12 rather, God says, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, for I will go through the land. Verse number 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood… I will pass over you. This is one of those instances where a song comes clearly right out of a verse in the Bible, but you and I could sing the song without connecting it to the verse. We could just sit and sing, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And we just move on because that's what we do in singing. No. What happens if he doesn't see the blood? There are people visiting the Lord's body. They're hearing that song song. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Well, that means exactly that. What's going to happen in Egypt if he does not see the blood? Then he won't pass over. Then the firstborn of every man and beast will die in Egypt, and they do. Among the Egyptians, there is death because they didn't see the blood. Because Moses said it, no, because God said it. And if you didn't put the blood out where God instructed, then you wouldn't have done the good work and you wouldn't be saved. And death would have visited your family. And there was a cry in Egypt heard like nothing ever before. And there was much death in Egypt that night. The New Testament will take that language and slide it over to the church and Christians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and listen to what the Apostle Paul says with regards to, here is a brother living in sin. Now, he is a Christian. And as a result of that, there's expectation for his sanctification, He is to be holy, for God is holy. That's the expectation. That's what saved people do. They live sanctified lives. But here is a brother who is not doing that. And as Paul writes to the church, he says, you have to do something about this. Beginning in verse number one, Paul says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such kinds does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Let me pause and ask this. Why would Paul talk about the Gentiles? Why would he do that? You remember in Ephesians 2, he says, you were formerly Gentiles. What's the Gentiles? How do they live? They are without hope and without God in the world. They are living in sin apart from Christ. Here's a situation where Paul says, inside of the body of Christ, there is a sin occurring that's not even named among the Gentiles. That would be the equivalent of saying of Old Testament Israel like God does of Manasseh. You're doing things that the people in the land don't even do. You've sinned more. You've done more wickedness than the people in the land. People apart from God aren't doing what you're doing, and you're in the church. Paul says, not even reported among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. What are you to do about that? He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, And I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Another topic, another day. But when we talk about church discipline, this is why. Because people, again, misunderstand salvation and sanctification, sometimes people get up in arms at even the mention. You're going to withdraw fellowship from somebody? How dare you? You people think y'all are better than everybody else. Y'all are not better than anybody else, and withdraw fellowship, is, and they go on and on and on. Let me ask you this. What should we do then? Brothers living openly in sin. Everybody knows it. What should the church do? We have but two options. We can do nothing and endorse it. That's what Corinthians doing. That's exactly what they're doing. Paul says, you become arrogant. You're puffed up. You're feeling good about this as if everything is right. Or we can do what the Lord says and do what Paul says here and exercise discipline. What should we do? Here's what I hope. I hope you're not the person who, when they meet God in eternity, says something like this. You know, I did read that you said that we should withdraw from people who live openly in sin and refuse to repent. However, I just didn't think that was very nice. I just didn't think that was very loving. In fact, I thought the loving thing to do was to live and let live and let him alone. And who was I to say something about it? You know, that's just not the way the Bible pictures it. But I hope that's not your position. It is some people's, though. It's not Paul's position. In fact, notice how Paul connects it. He says in verse number six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What should you do then? Clean out the old leaven." Where would we be talking about leaven and cleaning it out? That would be Exodus 12. What else was in Exodus 12? Passover. Blood. When I see it, I'll pass over. What did they have to do in those first 11 verses of Exodus 12? Get the leaven out. What's Paul saying here? Get the leaven out. Why? Just keep reading. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lamp, just as are, in fact, unleavened for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, Passover. When I see the blood, in this case, the blood of Christ. When I see the blood, I will pass over, but what if he doesn't see the blood? Well, there's no passing over. What happens in this case, it won't be physical death, it'll be eternal death. It'll be the second death. It'll be people's souls cast into eternal damnation. From where? Inside the church. Why? Lack of sanctification. They're already saved people, absolutely. In fact, the book is written to the church of God at Corinth. And throughout the book, he calls them brethren. That they're saved, there's no doubt about that. But the sanctification, living, holy, that's demanded by God. And without that, then God won't pass over. The salvation is intended to be understood as certain and fixed so that from there, you can live a sanctified life. The challenge comes in when people are led to believe that their salvation is connected entirely to their sanctification. And that is, every step I take as a sanctified person, if I have a misstep, then that means I'm not saved. And so, in sanctification, we are on this process of journey, but I've messed up, and that then interferes with my salvation. What I'm trying to describe, at least at this point, is that's not the way it works with salvation and sanctification. Growing in Christ, maturing in Christ is not intended to be a threat to salvation, so that every time there's a misstep, we go back to being unsaved that is where many Christians live their lives, but that is not the nature of the biblical teaching relative to these things. As it relates to salvation, there are some identifiers. Number one, salvation is relational. God saves us, and he becomes our father. 1 John 3 and verse number one. Secondly, salvation is translational. You're actually moving from one location to another, you are being translated, Colossians 1.13, out of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. If the Ephesians were without God, by obeying the gospel, they become near by Christ's blood. It's translational. You move. Thirdly, it's locational. You move from one place to another. As we talked about Noah, you're in the ark as opposed to outside of it. You're in the house as opposed to outside of it. You're in Christ as opposed to outside of him. And this is where, again, many Christians think, I'm in Christ, yes, but I sinned, and now I'm out of Christ. That's not the way it works. That's not the biblical teaching and model. In fact, We wouldn't do that to Old Testament Israel. We never do. We march with them through their history, and rarely do we say, well, they had a misstep, and so I guess they're no longer God's people. That's not how it works at all. They had a misstep, and so I guess God is done with them. That's not how we read the Old Testament at all, and that's the Old Testament. In fact, we read Romans 15, 4 a couple of Wednesdays ago. It's supposed to produce hope. Hope in who? Hope in God. Hope in them, that they can treat each other the way God intended, and ultimately hope for us. Five things the saved then must know. Number one, we must know who we are. This is why, again, my hair is almost on fire, the little bit that I have, when I hear Christians refer to themselves and others as sinners. That's not who we are, that's who we were. But look at 1 John 3 and notice what he says in verse number one. Because of the nature of salvation, we were without God. We're not anymore we were sinners we're not anymore the nature of our relationship with god has changed john says in first john 3 and verse number one see how great love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of god i can assure you when you are outside of christ living a life of sin uncovered by his blood, you haven't been washed, you haven't been cleansed, you, have, you are not a child of God. John 8 would say, these are the children of the devil. That's what John 8 would say. So then, if that's what we were, when we obey the gospel and John says, we are children of God, what you're working on then is, when would I cease to be one? This is one of the reasons that one stumble can't make me a child of the devil. can't do that. Salvation is understood by who we are. John goes on to say, now we are children of God. And coincidentally, if you, you heard the sermon this morning, once you're there in 1 John, turn over to chapter 5, and, and, and we read these passages. I just didn't talk about them because sermons tend to get long when you talk about every passage. Maybe y'all have heard something like that. Look at verse number, look at verse number 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Let me ask you this. If every sin a Christian commits puts him back over here, How does one say there's a sin not leading to death? Because by our metric, every sin leads to death. Every sin leads you out of the blood of Christ. Every sin leads you back in the dark. Every sin leads you out. John says their sin doesn't do that. Now, I don't think for one second that John has a particular sin in mind, either the sin leading to death or not leading to death. But the life of a Christian is not measured by one incident, and that puts you back out. First John 1, 7, will refute that. But here in chapter 5, John says we're children of God, chapter 3, and there's a sin not leading to death. That's not even possible if every time a person sins, they're put outside the body of Christ. Secondly, we need to know what happened to us. When we obey the gospel and become saved, we are translated out of darkness. That's how Colossians 1 and verse 13 reads it. We need to know when we became that way. When did we leave the darkness? Look at Romans 6, verses 16 and 17, and listen to what the Apostle Paul says relative to that. Now, of course, he's already referenced chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. But in verses 16 and 17, he says this, Do you not know... That when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Those are the two options. There is the presentation of ourselves to sin and to, and, and to death, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness or life. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. Some people don't like the word pattern, but that's just the word. There is a particular pattern of teaching that leads to salvation. There's a particular form. For those who are seamstress, they surely understand when you're sewing things, you follow the pattern. You go by the pattern, look on the outside, I like that. I'm going to make that. You go home, and then you follow the pattern, and what you saw is produced. If you're a good seamstress, well, that's the way it works. Moses was told, see that you do all things according to the pattern. That's how the tabernacle was made, Exodus 25, 9, and 40. Here Paul uses that analogy, that language, and says with reference to the gospel, you didn't haphazardly become a Christian. You didn't imagine it. You didn't stumble into it. There was a very specific pattern of teaching taught to you, and you obeyed from the heart that form of teaching. What was the result of it? He says, you obeyed from the heart. That form of teaching was committed to you. And verse 18 says, having been freed from sin. How were you freed from sin? What happened to you? In salvation, you're translated out of darkness. When did it happen? when you obeyed that form of teaching. As mentioned, he's already explained it back in this very chapter, verses 3, 4, 5, leading down to this section. Where are we then? After you obey from the heart, now that you're a child of God, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 10, Paul says, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation is in Christ. How do I get there? There are two passages in the New Testament that tell you how to get into Christ. One of them is in this very chapter, again, verses 3 through 5. Another one is Galatians 3, 27. For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. Christ. When did I robe myself in Christ? When did his blood cover me? When did I become part of God's family? The Bible uses a lot of analogies. One of them is you were born again. When's the new birth? When you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, John 3, 3 through 5. You obey and you are washed, you are cleansed, you are born again. There is a death, a burial, and a new birth, a resurrection. That's when I obey the gospel. Now I'm God's child. Now I'm in Christ. Now I have my sins cleansed. Now I'm saved. As a result of that, God wants me to be sanctified. To live a holy life based on my salvation, which leads us to a very good stopping point. Next week, let's talk about sanctification then relative to what happens next now that I'm saved. Y'all are sitting there like, go on, preacher, but you know if I do that… Y'all be the same ones at the back. Meet me saying, man, what's going on? So long. There is a difference between <laughs> salvation and sanctification. If you take anything from the night, hopefully you took more, but if you take anything, please take this, this concept that salvation is a one-time action that puts me into the place where God has placed salvation and creates a relationship with God I didn't previously enjoy, and adds me to his family, washes away my sins. And all of the words that God uses to describe that, doesn't matter which one justification. It's accomplished here. Righteousness. It's accomplished here. Salvation accomplished here. And all of these words have different nuanced little meanings, one from another, but they all indicate a change in the relationship with God. And now that I'm this, as opposed to this, then God calls upon me to live a life That is thankful, reflective of my understanding and the nature of our new relationship. And we'll pick up with that next week. Not a Christian tonight, become one. It's the Bible that teaches these things. And if we would do you a terrible disservice, if we joined in with the rest of the world and simply said, go wherever you want to. Do whatever you want to, and God is going to be pleased we would do you a terrible disservice because there's nowhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation where you read that kind of appeal to God, that it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe, that as long as you're religious, that as long as you believe, there is nothing in the Bible. The Bible is intended to teach us In building block form, stone after stone, laying upon the foundation, marching us toward Calvary. And all along the way, it gives us these wonderful insights as it adds to our knowledge. And ultimately, it's about God and what He says and what He requires. And God says, be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24 change your heart, change your mind. We talk about salvation. We probably don't talk enough about repentance, but we should talk much more about that because so often the struggle for Christians over here is the result of not understanding repentance over here. And so we owe ourselves to do a better job as preachers and others to help people understand exactly what they're doing when they're obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water. And God, through Jesus, not because we said it, but because the Bible said it, and it's God's design and arrangement. God said he will wash away your sins. God said he will add you to the body of Christ. And God says you will then become his child. He'll be your father. And you and he will have a relationship that will endure your entire life on into glory. If you have not done that, we beg you do so tonight as we stand and as we sing.